I just want, I want to start by sharing, I was personally so encouraged to hear uh, from the church last Sunday and throughout the week just what conversations came out of our time uh, in the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, just throughout the week, I got to hear reports of how community groups were walking through that together and how some of you were stirred and were wrestling by the, the power of the gospel for salvation and also for it to develop our faith. I was overjoyed just to hear what God's been doing uh, to start off our, our series in Romans. This is our third week in Romans, and uh, it's an interesting week because today begins um, the, the bad news. And we use a, a word picture to just kind of help understand what's going on. And, and I've told you guys this a few times. If you've been around, you've heard me talk about it. But the Dutch painter Rembrandt would start every canvas that he was going to paint by painting the entire canvas black. And it was a very unique style. It was something that not many people were doing. And, uh, you know, art historians have studied it and have looked at it. They've been shocked by how much light and color and depth can come out of his painting. I spent some time even this morning looking through a few of his uh, just stunning, stunning works of art. But the idea of painting the entire canvas black uh, it represents very well what Paul is doing in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going to be talking today in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and then next week in chapter 2, and then following that uh, in the early part of Romans chapter 3. And each one really mines the depth of our brokenness. It's Paul essentially looking at every human being and saying, look, there's, there's nobody that doesn't need the gospel. And for Paul, that's good news. He actually articulates just how broken humanity actually is and walks through it in great detail. In chapter 1, he'll talk about the sins that we do. In chapter 2, he'll talk about the judgmental heart and the hypocrite. And in chapter 3, he'll talk about how we sometimes try to use religion and our good behavior to get to God. And all three of those miss the mark of what it means to know and be in a relationship with God. And it just shows how desperate we are for salvation. How desperate we are for a solution to the problem of our brokenness. I think for some of us, we, we look around and we don't necessarily need a theological answer uh, to the problems of humanity. We look at the world and we think, look, there's, there's war, there's civil war, there's famine, there's racism, there's brokenness around the world, there's violence, and it's not hard to look at this world and say, it's a fallen world. But there are other people that might look around and say, I know there's a lot of bad that's going on, but there's, there's actually some good that happens. We create, there's art and music, and we do philanthropy, and we help people. And look at how far we've made it as it relates to AIDS or malaria. Like, we've done some incredible things as humanity. But even people that look at the, the good that humanity has done, we oftentimes think, but where is this world going? Even with all of that good that we've done, even with all of the humanitarian help, even with all of the effort, it still feels like we're just a broken people that's not doing enough to make humanity and this world right. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. That the good news of the gospel is that you are truly broken and incapable of healing this world on your own. And it's, it, for some of you, it might be like, well, why is that good news? Why is that good news? Well, what it does is it makes it so that every single one of us has one message to hear. 
There's not different solutions for different people around the world. There's not different pathways to uh, understand what it might be to be righteous or to have eternal life or to get to God or to find enlightenment, but that there is ultimately one solution to that. And, and Paul, it's not a, you know, a, a spoiler alert. He shared it last week. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and to the Greek. This isn't just one nation or the other. It's all people need to hear this. But to help us appreciate just how much we need the gospel, Paul's going to go to work helping us understand how bad humanity truly is. Now, a little bit about this. As we get into Romans 1, 18 through 32, uh, a lot of people read into it like Paul's just firing away at how bad Rome is. He's, he just wants to tell the world how bad the Roman Empire is. That would be a misread of Romans chapter 1. Paul's not actually pointing out any people group in particular He's talking about all of humanity for all time. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to go through it in some sections. We're going to read verses 18 through 23 first and talk about that, and then we'll do 24 through the end and then talk about that. So let's start in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's mankind, humanity, not a gender thing. It's not just the men that get the wrath of God who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, so the passage starts with this phrase, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man or of mankind. And it's important to know that that word all becomes a theme throughout the book of Romans. All. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all is, is a really important theme as we go through the book of Romans. And Paul wants us to know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, it's an important thing to see. Uh, I don't know what your Bibles do. You probably can't see my Bible. But right here, there's a bold heading that says God's wrath on unrighteousness. Sometimes those headings are helpful. Sometimes they break up a flow of thought. I want you to go back to 117 because this is Paul introducing an, a thought. He says this, For in it, talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what you see is those sentences are structured very similarly. Righteousness of God revealed, wrath of God revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. And so what you're getting here is that Paul's declaring the revelation of God, and different people experience it in different ways. 
The revelation of God for those who have faith is righteousness. They get to experience the righteousness of God. They get to walk in and receive the righteousness of God. That's the from faith for faith. It actually grows in us as our faith develops. The wrath of God is revealed for those who don't have faith, the unrighteous and ungodly. That phrase reveals that God's wrath is actually going to be his revelation. That's going to be your experience of God without faith. So that's the the fork in the road that Paul is bringing us to is faith leads down one road, and he's going to come back to that and talk about it for a while, but wrath needs to be talked about for a little bit. Now, I want to share with you about God's wrath. God's wrath is not a character quality like God's love or God's mercy. It's, It's only there because sin exists. Now, it is directly connected to God's holiness, righteousness, and justice. Those are character qualities of God. But God's wrath is, when sin entered the world, his holiness demanded a wrathful response. So the only reason that God's wrath exists is in response to the sinfulness that exists in this world. That is God's holy response to sin. It's his righteous response to sin is God's wrath. So as we understand what Paul's about to get into, he wants us to understand the experience of of humanity apart from faith, is that they will experience the wrath of God. Now he says uh, this, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is actually a philosophical conversation that Paul is getting into. He wants to talk about the fact that God is on display in creation. He's made himself known. So even if from the very beginning somebody had or didn't have access to, say, the law or the Ten Commandments or God's presence on Mount Sinai, God has made himself apparent by putting himself on display in creation. And that's a, that's a philosophical premise that Paul's presenting, that God has revealed himself in creation. Now, this whole idea of God's revelation through creation, there are a couple of things about it. Paul doesn't expect that by looking at a sunset, people would come to faith in the knowledge of Jesus crucified and resurrected. In fact, he'll go on later in Romans chapter 10 to say, how can they believe if they've never heard? And he'll talk about the gospel being communicated through the words of one person to another, to another, to another. So this isn't about gospel revelation. This is about God and his existence and his presence. And Paul's pointing out that that God made himself known. Now, Boston University was very curious about this, and uh, probably about 10 years ago, they did a study, and they were so baffled by the response and results of their own study, they ran it three different times. And the study was this. They wanted to study uh, whether people believed things were made by somebody or something, or if they just happened through natural phenomenon. And so they wanted to study this, and they broke people up into two groups— Religious and non-religious, people that already believed in a God and a source, or people that uh, confessed that they either did not believe in God, they were atheists, or they didn't know and they weren't sure that there was a God, and they broke up these two groups. And the study was this, they flashed pictures in front of them, and they had to respond with uh, maker, like there was a maker, a designer, or natural phenomenon. And they had to give a flash response, they just had seconds to respond to each one, or half second, or whatever it was. And here's the thing, overwhelmingly, the religious group, maker, 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 everything. 
The thing that baffled them was the non-religious group. They started showing things like a watch, maker, a bridge, maker, a car, maker, a jet, maker, a waterfall, a rainbow, a rainforest. They started showing things that existed in nature and they were blown away by the number of people that responded with maker to what would otherwise be described as a natural phenomenon. That the instinctive response in human beings was to say, oh, clearly that's designed. I share that because that just, it gives, I think, a little bit of understanding that what Paul is sharing is God has made himself known. And not everybody comes to the conclusion when they look at the mountains that there's clearly a God. But what God is saying to us through Paul is that he has made himself available. He can be seen through what is out there. Now he shares this, and then Paul talks about this in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is where we kind of will sit in our first point for a little while. Humanity's basic knowledge of God is one thing, but this idea of idolatry is a base sin that Paul communicates. And what I mean when I say base sin is that Paul will identify idolatry as a sin from which immorality flows. So the way that he would premise this is if we have God as the object of our worship, then there is a purifying or sanctifying effect. He'll get to that in Romans chapter 12. But if there is an idol that we are worshiping, then it's immorality that flows out of us. The things that will come out of us are not the things of God, but the things of this world. And so that is the base sin of idolatry. And he talks about this, and this is actually where we know that Paul is not just talking about Rome, but he is talking about all humanity, Jew, Gentile. He's not differentiating, differentiating, and this is not modern to that day, but human history. In fact, of all the immoralities that Paul's going to talk about, you can find all of them in Israel's history, and you can find all of them in Gentile history. So this isn't a Jew-Gentile thing. This is Paul saying humanity has responded to its idolatry by living in these kinds of ways. And this idolatry is a pretty important thing for us to understand. It's something that uh, for, for Paul as a writer, he wants you to know that humanity's brokenness at its core is taking God out of the place of the object of our worship. And so as you walk through this, understand a couple of things. First of all, with Israel, idolatry was very apparent. Idolatry was something that they struggled with throughout their history. If you're familiar with the story of Israel being rescued out of Egypt from Pharaoh's hand, Moses led them out into the wilderness. They get to the base of Mount Sinai. And they're at Mount Sinai, and God's presence descends on Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning, and it's this massive earthquake presence of God. Israel is a nation, a million of them. They back off, and they say, Moses, you go represent us. We can't approach that mountain. There's this sense of God's holiness is too much for us. And they send Moses up to Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up. He spends 40 days up there without eating. He communes with God. He receives the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And he's bringing them down the mountain. And he sees that Israel, as a people, had gotten antsy. While Moses was up on the hill with the presence of God, thunder, lightning, smoke, the whole deal, they started to think, we could really use something to worship down here. 
And they gathered up all their gold and they gave it to Aaron the priest and he melted it down and he formed it into a golden calf and they started dancing and worshiping and shouting and singing and that's what Moses came down to. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the first one listed in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 is, you shall have no other gods before me. And Israel, with God's presence on the mountain right next to them, said, you know what? Something else sounds really good to worship right now, something tangible. And that's indicative of the state of the human heart. That's so quickly we tend to wander from God being the thing that we worship to other things that we can come after and go and find to worship. I want to take you a little bit deeper into Israel's idolatry, and I think this is important because for a lot of us, we could look at Rome and we could think, oh yeah, they had all kinds of gods. They worshiped all kinds of pagan things. Rome clearly was the bad guy. Again, Paul's looking at it and saying, humanity is the bad guy. This is 1 Kings chapter 17, and I want to walk through this. And I'll just, uh, before I walk through it, I want to share with you. This morning as I was reading this, I, I got a bit sick to my stomach reading this. Started even to cry a little bit, just thinking of the significance of taking God out of the place that he belongs and putting something else in that place. And how quickly we do this. It's easy to see it in Israel's history, but sometimes it's hard to see it in our own lives. This is 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Skip down to verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. And the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. In verse 17, and they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is Israel. God's chosen people, he had rescued them out of Egypt and walked them through the Red Sea on dry ground, showed up at Mount Sinai, gave them the commandments, and in such short time, their idolatry had happened and their idolatry had taken root so much so that the immorality that flowed out of them was child sacrifice. They burned their own children in worship of false gods. Now, I want to share, before we get too caught up in just the, the ancient idolatry, this is a book that uh, Tim Keller 
Uh, he's now retired, but a pastor in New York City wrote. It's called Counterfeit Gods. I'm going to mention a couple books today, and I'll leave them up here if you want to come and scan the barcode or get it for yourself. But this is a good one to read. He shares in this, uh, in this book, he says, To contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated, is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that we have assumed mythic proportions, that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. Idolatry is not simply setting up a golden calf or something that you would worship, but it's anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Anything that we would seek to satisfy that is not God's presence in our life. It can be comfort. It could be sex. It could be success It could be any form of desire. There are so many idols that we come up with, and that's the point of what Tim is saying, is that each culture finds its own thing to worship that's not God. And then different kinds of immorality will flow out of those idols. And that immorality, that's what Paul's going to get into just now, that immorality, it stems from, at its core, idolatry. And that is the ultimate problem that God is working to solve is the idolatry that produces the immorality. Now, I'll say this. Sometimes, as Christians, we get caught up in trying to solve the immorality issue, but we don't deal with the idolatry issue. So we'll go out to a world full of people doing all kinds of wicked things, and we'll try and say, stop doing wicked things. But there's a, there's a core issue that's not being dealt with. And that gospel truth is something that takes the the idols that exist and it replaces them. It moves them to the side. It tears them down, which is so often, as you go through the Old Testament, when somebody would walk in righteousness, the first thing that they would do is they would go into every temple, every high place, every green tree, and they would physically tear down the idols, remove the idols completely if they were going to walk righteously with God. And in our lives, the, the gospel It doesn't come alongside the idols in our heart. There's no room for our idolatries to stay and Jesus to also rule. For Jesus to enter into our lives, there's a a full submission of these idols and releasing them to him. So Paul starts by looking at this and saying, look, at, at a core issue, humanity has fallen because of our idolatry. Now we want to talk about the immorality that flows out of that idolatry. So Paul will reference this uh, three different things. I was about to read 2 Kings. Let me get back to Romans chapter 1. All right, Paul will reference uh, three times God gave them up. And each one of these represents a category of immorality that, uh, that he's referencing in terms of all of human history. So starting in verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, here's why I spent so much time um, undoing the wicked Romans, that, that Paul's referencing the wicked Romans. See, Paul's goal is that, that at the end of Romans chapter 1, everybody, Jew, Gentile, Roman, non-Roman, everybody would find themselves on this list. He mentions 23 different sins over the course of this uh, section, and each one flows out of a, a different idolatry or some, maybe some base idolatries that flow into these immoral behaviors. And the goal is not for people to look at this and say, oh yeah, that's a wicked world, but it's to look at that and say, gosh, I can, I can find myself two or three or four or seven or 15 times on this list. I'm who Paul's talking about. Apart from faith, the wrath of God is revealed against my ungodliness and my unrighteousness. That's the goal of this list. And if, if hypothetically somebody makes it through Romans 1 still standing, you get to Romans 2 and Paul says, well, hey, you who judge, you hypocrite who stands in some kind of moral superiority to the people that are doing all these sins, by your judgment, you place yourself in the same category as the person that does the sin. The goal is for everybody to understand I need the gospel. So now, let's get into these three God-giving-them-up situations. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, the word impurity does not always mean sexual impurity, but because of the presence of the word body, uh, Almost uniformly, scholars will say Paul's referencing sexual impurity when he talks about this first uh, section, that he gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, and there is an impurity, a sexual impurity that comes with that. Now, that's a broad category. Sexual impurity throughout the Bible references a, a quite a variety of sexual sins, and we'll talk about adultery. That's being married to somebody and having a sexual relationship with somebody that's not your spouse. And so adultery is mentioned frequently. Oftentimes the word sexual immorality will be used. And sexual immorality goes to a couple of places. It can talk about any sort of sexual activity outside of the context of marriage where sexual intimacy was designed to take place. Any sexual activity outside of marriage falls into the category of sexual immorality, including pornography. The word porneia is used in the Greek. And that idea of uh, lust and even using sexuality for our own satisfaction falls under this category of sexual impurity. And so Paul starts by saying that God gave them up. There's this 
idolatry, and there's a number of different idols that can produce sexual desires. It could be love. You could set love as an idol then that, that becomes the thing that you believe will satisfy your soul. And if I could only get love, then I will have what I'm looking for in this life. And oftentimes that can lead us to a very broken place of finding love in sexual companionship and looking for love in places that are not God himself. It could be comfort. Comfort could be an idol. I feel uncomfortable in my own skin. If I just have somebody with me, it makes me feel satisfied. It makes me feel better. If I could just see these things, it will, it will satisfy the constant discomfort that I feel. And so Paul identifies this, this overarching category of impurity that could come from a number of idols, but to identify that this is some of the immorality that comes out of the idolatry of humanity. So it's the, the lust of their hearts. It's the things that come from our desires, and it produces impurity. The second category says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And he goes on to talk about same-sex sexual activity. And I, I shared with you last week that we would be talking through this a little bit, and I will give it some particular attention because culturally it is uh, an issue that's being talked about in a significant way. Uh, I mentioned that I would share a couple of books. One of them is called People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Preston was an elder here at Anthem Church. Before he moved to Idaho, he's since started an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. It provides resources for uh, same-sex attracted people, uh, for families of same-sex attracted people, for anybody trying to understand better, for churches wanting to walk through uh, this issue in particular with people. It's a very helpful resource. But I want to share a couple of things, and then I'll share a quote from this uh, that I think would help make clear what's going on in Romans. Uh, the Bible, as you read through it, it always prohibits same-sex sexual relationships and activity. Now, that being said, there are only five key passages that address same-sex sexual activity, but each one of them prohibits that choice. Uh, many that are wanting to try and find a way for uh, same-sex relationships to fit under the category of righteous would look for ways to uh, understand or find different contexts or reinterpret some of the passages. And Romans 1, uh, to be totally honest, provides the biggest blockage for that. Uh, it's a, a passage that does speak directly to same-sex sexual activity, both in men and women. And this is the only passage that does deal with lesbian relationships and gay relationships in the scriptures. And what's significant about that is that oftentimes uh, when people see um, uh, male same-sex relationships or activity talked about in the scriptures, our thought goes to, well, there was a lot of slavery, there was a lot of rape, uh, there were a lot of power dynamics uh, in homosexuality in the first century or in the ancient world, and so that must be what Paul's talking about, and he's, he's referencing those kinds of instances, not mutual and loving relationships that are consensual, that are covenanted, those types of things. Paul's dealing with something different than that. But as you look to uh, what Preston will say, what other scholars will say, is that the inclusion of women in this particular section, the, the lesbian relationships added in, uh, it actually takes away the power dynamics that often did exist. And there were mutual uh, love relationships that did exist in the ancient world among males and among females. And so this isn't, it's not absent from that. There wasn't only power dynamics that Paul is dealing with. He is dealing with same-sex sexual activity as a part of human experience 
comes from an idolatry and is a sinful action. Now, I, I share that. I want to share what Preston says about this because there are, there are two related sins when we talk about same-sex sexual activity that come out of this, this conversation. One is the sin of overemphasis, highlighting it beyond its place in Scripture. Something has happened in the church where a lot of people will take these two verses and they'll pull them out of Romans 1 and they will use them to uh, use the word bash the uh, LGBTQ community or uh, try to in some way inflict a morality on the world or to bring harm. It, it does something to, uh, when, when the church will overemphasize these two verses out of place from the context that they're in. So there is a sin of overemphasizing these verses, but there's a second responsive sin that happens, and that's that when we ignore it or try and explain it away. And so that's where I think Preston's quote is really helpful. It'll be up on the screen behind me. So this is from People to Be Loved. He does an entire chapter on Romans chapter 1 just to, to really help understand because it is uh, the most significant passage in the scriptures that deals with same-sex sexual activity, which I'll explain why I use that phrase in just a minute. Uh, this is from Preston Sprinkle. He says, if I have rightly interpreted Paul, then this would logically mean that it would be more destructive, not less, to encourage people to fulfill their desire for sexual intimacy with a person of the same sex. It may seem to satisfy a person's felt needs and desires. It may appear to be the most loving thing to do, it may feel like you're looking out for that person's best interest and wanting them to flourish as human beings, but what if the opposite is true? If God is love, and if God wants humans to flourish, and if Romans 1 accurately reflects the will of God, then it is not loving, nor would it cause a person to flourish as a human to encourage them to pursue same-sex sexual intimacy. But let's remember the context of Romans 1. Paul doesn't write this chapter to condemn gay people. He writes it to condemn all people. Reading Romans 1 without reading Romans 2 to 3 or the rest of the letter is like walking out of a theater five minutes after the movie started. Any discussion, debate, sermon, or lecture on homosexuality that doesn't showcase the scandalous grace that beams from the rest of Romans is itself a scandalous disregard of the gospel. There should be something in our hearts when we read through this that both seeks to understand that we submit to a God who declares what is righteous in this world and then invites us to go out into this world with the gospel, to be light to a hurting humanity, to walk faithfully in the truth and gently as Jesus did and to care for people well. Would it be inappropriate for us as a church to take passages like this and to use them uh, to inflict harm on people? Now, I shared that I used the phrase same-sex sexual activity very intentionally. Uh, Preston will talk about this, and if you are interested, two years ago he came out and he preached on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here at Anthem Church. It's on our podcast. You can look that up. And he also did a night walking through... Um, just helping us understand the LGBTQ community and what a church's response might look like to that. And Preston shared, he does in this book, and he also shared with us as a church, uh, that he differentiates same-sex attraction from same-sex lust and sexual activity. And so same-sex attraction not being a sin and same-sex lust and sexual activity being a sin. 
in the same way that for a heterosexual person, heterosexual attraction would not be a sin, but heterosexual lust and activity outside of the bounds of marriage would be a sin. And so in that, trying to help us understand what it is to interact with people that are walking through uh, attractions, walking through uh, how they feel, what they um, ultimately are attracted to, there's something very important to us about walking with people pastorally through that. And so on that end, I want to share, one, I do encourage you to grab this book. I think it's very helpful. Two, I'll just say this. We're going to put a number up on the screen. It'll be up now. It'll be up again at the end of our time. Uh, if there are any of you that would like to just walk through um, with us, our elder team, any issues related to same-sex attraction, uh, understanding what it is. I know many people in the church have close relationships, friends, siblings, uh, parents or kids that are walking through same-sex attraction, trying to understand it. How does it relate to the church? Uh, we would count it an honor to walk through that with you or even just to encourage you, um, share with you if you want to know more about this. And so you can text that number uh, and just say, I'm interested in chatting with somebody and we, and we would connect with you right away and walk through whatever with you. So that'll be up now. It'll be up again at the end. And like I said, I'll have these books on the stage available for you to, to grab and to look through. So I will be moving on from uh, same-sex sexual activity and into the third category. Um, but I, just, I, I do want to make this very clear. As much as we want to understand the truth, we do want to live pastorally in this world. Uh, the, the mission of the gospel has never once been to go out and change the morality of a fallen world. So our first job is not to go out and get the world to start acting like Christians. I mean, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, you know how hard it is for you to act like a Christian, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Bible. So imagine what it is for somebody that does not have the Spirit of God and does not have the Scriptures guiding them to walk with any sense of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. There's, there's zero expectation of that in the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What we bring to the world is Jesus himself. He's the transformer. He's the one that builds and encourages and blesses. He's the one that brings life change. Jesus is the gospel. That's what we bring. And so our goal is to be a part of a broken and fallen world and to bring the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ and our hope and expectation for the world to look different is not that the world would look different through politics or education or uh, any other global change of morality, but rather through the transforming work of Jesus Christ. And that's why that is our first and foremost message is that we bring the gospel of Jesus. Okay, next thing. Paul writes about this in verse 28. He says, and since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, the next category of things that Paul will talk about is the mind that thinks of doing things that are not consistent with God's righteousness. And what's interesting about this list, he's even got one on there that says inventors of evil. How many of you have invented evil at some point just in the depths of your mind? I can raise my hand. When my brain goes to dark places, I'm like, dang. I wonder if anybody's ever thought that before. Like that, that's what Paul is referencing is our human proclivity, our ability, each generation, each culture to invent new ways of expressing our rebellion to God. The debased mind that we've been given over is the, the attitudes and activities that just across the board are inconsistent with the holiness of God. And he does give a list. 
I'll walk through it a little bit, but there's four of the big, the first, the big categories, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. And then he goes into more specifics. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, which just means thinking of yourself as better than somebody else, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And the final sin that he references is that those that, that know God's decree and they know that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So as we think about a debased mind and just understanding, Paul's again laying it out there and saying, this is all of us. When our, our worship doesn't go towards God and God alone, we start to express our idolatry in all kinds of immorality. Our minds don't think holiness when we're worshiping something other than God. Now, when we are worshiping God, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 will say, it does transform our way of thinking. It actually completely changes the mind that we have and we start to think and act differently. But apart from that, our idolatry produces all kinds of immorality. And one of the things that it does is it, our minds just come up with ways to act in rebellion to God. Again, at some point, you should be able to find yourself here. And I want to start by, uh, not start, I'm not starting the message now. We're too far into that. I want to finish by sharing the gospel because we can't not talk about the gospel. So Paul starts with uh, this section in verse 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And then he says three times, he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. And, and what we learn from this is that there are two kinds of God's wrath. There's God's active wrath and God's passive wrath. God's active wrath is when he unleashes his wrath on the sinner. Now, we know that God has stayed his active wrath. Otherwise, every human being that has ever sinned would instantly be struck down dead because the wages of sin is death. The wrath of God is deserved for everybody that's committed a sin. So every one of us at some point would be eliminated. So we know, we know that God has stayed his active wrath. But the greatest example of God's active wrath is the cross. God unleashes his wrath on Jesus. This is the, the beginning of the gospel. Romans 3.21. I say the beginning of the gospel. What I mean is the beginning of the good news. Romans 3.21. After he shared all the bad news, Paul writes this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What Paul wants us to know is that all of that wickedness, all of that evil, the idolatry and the immorality that it, that it produces, all of that, God is fully aware of it. He's watched humanity cultivate sinfulness for generation after generation after generation. He's watched 
the people that he did not have under his umbrella, the Gentiles, and he's watched Israel, the people that he did have under this covenant umbrella that he's walked with, that he gave the law to, across the board have walked away from his covenant promises. All of humanity has sinned. All of it falls short. Romans 3.10, he'll quote the book of Psalms and say, none is righteous, not even one. But then he says, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's not, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. And in Jesus, something happened. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And all ungodliness and unrighteousness was placed on Jesus at the cross. And God's wrath, his active wrath, was poured out on Jesus at the cross. Whatever wrath was due to you and me, if we put our faith in Jesus, we experience rescue from that wrath. That is, in essence, what salvation is, is saving us from our experience of the wrath of God. And instead, we get the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, this ever-developing, growing understanding of the righteousness of God as our faith grows and fills our lives. We're saved from the wrath of God and we're given the righteousness of God. That's the essence of the gospel. God's active wrath poured out on Jesus. But there is another component. When Paul uses the phrase, he gave them up, there is this sense of God's passive wrath. Now, God's passive wrath is, uh, you know, it could be one of those things where as a parent, you're raising teenagers and you say, okay, don't have sex outside of marriage because if you do, it's going to be awful. It's going to be the worst thing you've ever done. And then a kid has sex outside of marriage and they're like, that wasn't the worst thing I've ever done. And they start to feel like, I don't know, maybe the wrath of God isn't that bad. Well, so here's the issue. It's not, it's not that every time that somebody sins, they instantly experience the wrath of God. That's why it's called the passive wrath of God. But the wrath of God is revealed in this way where God gives you what you want. If you're going to walk away from God as Lord of your life, the wrath of God is him saying, okay, it's your freedom to choose that. You can walk away. I'm not going to stop you. But in that choice, you choose to take on yourself the wrath of God. So that is the, the passive wrath of God is him releasing you into what you want. The lusts of your heart, the dishonorable passions, the debased mind. He doesn't stop you from going down that path. And so he, he, does, he gives you up. He allows you to experience the distance from God, the being outside of his way, outside of his presence, outside of his joy, outside of his peace as you walk away from God's invitation to experience his grace. The good news of the gospel is that it draws us in. And the last thing I'll share, and then I'll actually, uh, Erica, you guys can start coming up here. The last thing I'll share is this. Uh, Paul writes a lot of they and them in Romans chapter 1. He's writing to a church, and he's saying they and them. And he'll switch very quickly in chapter 2, if you want to just look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So, that, so he kind of shifts from they and them, and he brings it then to you. But the understanding 
of what Paul is referencing when he says they and them is he's actually showing us the, the landscape of all humanity. He's saying every single one of us needs this gospel truth. Every single one of us needs this gospel reality. All fall short of the glory of God. My hope in sharing this message with you today is not that any one person would have any amount of ammunition with which to blast somebody else. That would be a complete miss of this message. That would be a complete miss of Paul's objective of Romans 1. If you go home and you're, you know, parent of a teenager and you're just like, did you see disobedient to parents? It's right there next to murder. I know I made that light. But even the attitude of pointing and using it as ammunition against somebody else's sin is a revelation of your own need for the gospel. This is not about them. Right now, this is about you. My goal is not to get you to question your own salvation. You might find yourself on that list. Paul's not writing about... There are times where he will say, these people do not inherit the kingdom of God, and he'll, he'll give a list of sinful activities in some of the other letters that he writes, and ultimately he's talking... That's a different thing. What he's doing in Romans 1 is different than that. What he's doing in Romans 1 is the landscape. Everybody needs the gospel. Who's everybody? We are. The end game of today is that 100% of the people in this room would walk out of here saying, dang, I need Jesus. I needed him before I gave my life to him. I need him today. I need him on the throne because my heart chases after idols. My heart's an idol factory. I look for other things to worship. There's times where I'm at the base of Mount Sinai and I'm like, that is the glory of the Lord. And then there's times where I'm like, look, a golden calf. I can't wait to worship it. And I just bounce back and forth and I need to see Jesus as the king of my life. I need that fresh reminder of what it means to worship God and God alone because I worship other things and it results in immorality every time. So if nothing else, I hope that this would be a humble reminder that every single one of us needs to revisit Jesus as the center of our lives and be tearing down the idols that build up in our hearts. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the joy of walking with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, stir us as a church to great obedience, stir us as a church to a great hunger for you. Not just that the world would look better or act better, but that the world would know you. That you would be the treasure, the, uh, the pearl of great price, the thing that we are all after, the one who sanctifies every single one of us. God, would you be our righteous king? And would our worship today reflect that? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your graciousness to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.